invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Pastor John will be preaching from this text both this Sunday and next Sunday. Verses 11 of chapter 5 through verse 12 of chapter 6. About this we have much to say, which is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of God's word. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, with instruction about ablutions, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy, since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt. For land which has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Though we speak thus, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love which you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I want you to suppose with me now that you are a gymnast and that you are in the middle of a routine, a floor exercise, surrounded by crowds of people and your coach is on the edge of this big square mat and you have made a good beginning of it And suddenly there comes over you a feeling of weariness and wobbliness in your knees and in your shoulders as you do some of your moves. And a terrible uncertainty grips you that you're going to be able to pull this routine off to the end. You maneuver into your last series of handsprings, which is supposed to climax in a great High double back flip with a full twist, which you're going to nail on your feet. And as you hit that last handspring, your arms just slightly buckle and you go up not quite as high as you hoped. And you are almost overcome with panic. I'm going to leave him in midair for a minute. 
The picture I have in mind is of the church to which this letter is being written. The church is the gymnast. The coach is the writer, the God-inspired writer of this book, Hebrews. Could be our church. We are the gymnast, perhaps. And as he writes this book, he catches them in midair. Just like that. Suddenly, slow motion begins to take over. And the gymnast realizes he's moving at about an inch a second. And that gives him time to think and to listen. And his coach hollers something from the edge of the mat in this situation. If he hears it, if he responds to it, He will pull it together, finish the move, and nail it on his feet. And maybe 8.5, 9.1. It had been pretty good up to that point. If he doesn't hear it, if he can't respond to what the coach is saying, he may just open his arms like we've done when we've tried diving certain kinds and fall on his neck and break it and die. A lot's at stake in the voice of this coach and whether this man hears what he's saying. My guess is that this text might be catching some of you in midair this morning. About to panic, a swirl of ceiling lights overhead... Noise from the crowd and no confidence at all. You're going to land on your feet tonight. Almost out of control as you come to church today. I want you to listen to what the coach says if you're in that situation. I want to show you where I get this idea of catching them at midair in a double backflip. Let's begin in chapter 6, verse 10. If you'll look at it with me, we'll read it. Chapter 6, verse 10 says, God is not so unjust, this is the coach talking now, as to overlook your work and the love which you showed for his sake, or in his name, in serving the saints, as you still do. Now, from that verse... Wouldn't you agree? It looks pretty good. This church looks pretty good. They have worked. They have loved. God will not forget it and bring disrepute upon his name in whose name they've done it. They have served and they are now serving. That's a good picture. That's all right. I'd like to be in that category. So what's the problem? I mean, if they finish this routine, 9.1 maybe, 8.5. What's the problem? Chapter 5, turn back now. Chapter 5, verse 12. And let's start reading the problem. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of God's Word. You need milk, not solid food. 
For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, that's not nearly so flattering, is it? That description of the church. Now, what's going on here? We've got this marvelous description of people who've loved, worked, won't be forgotten by God, served, and are now serving. Chapter 6, verse 10. And we've got this description of people who are uh, dull. They can't discern good and evil. They aren't trained. They can't go on and make any progress in advanced routines of gymnastics. We need to look real hard at verse 14 to try to figure out what the real problem is here with this church because it's described for us, I think, here. It says they don't have their faculties or senses trained to distinguish good from evil. Incidentally, the word trained there in Greek is gumnazo, from which we get gymnast. Okay? The problem with these people is that they are not very accomplished in separating good from evil. Somehow or other, the faculty, the moral faculties that are intended to have a kind of razor's edge that can separate right and wrong, black and white, good and evil, are dulled. They're not working. The moral picture before the eyes of these people appears to be a haze. There's confusion out there. They've lost the cutting edge of discernment in living the Christian life and choosing right and rejecting wrong. They're supposed to be alert and sharp and discerning and discriminating, and it's all, it's all drifting away. Why? Can we, can we go deeper in verse 14? Does it take us to a, a reason below that? I think it does by one more phrase that I've left out, namely the phrase, by practice. Solid food is, is, is for mature, not those... Uh, no, I read it wrong. Solid food is for the mature... For those who have their faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. And the NIV says by constant use. So why aren't these people mature? Why aren't they able to move on to more advanced coaching and routines? Why are they uh, stuck and morally fuzzy with no cutting edge of insight into good and evil? Answer, they're not practicing, exercising. Verse 13 talks about the word of righteousness. They're not, and then different translations, accustomed to it or exercising with it. I think we need to to keep the metaphor of of, uh, the uh, athlete back there in verse 13 and say that they're not taking this word of righteousness and using it and exercising with it. They're, it's sort of foreign to them and, and they're not accustomed to applying it in life. And so they're not very accomplished at walking through the world at, like uh, Romans 12 says. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may what? Prove, test, approve, make distinctions between good and evil and the will of God. They, they've lost it. They're, somehow or other, they're starting to uh, get in sync with the world, get out of sync with the word of righteousness, and uh, mess their routine up real good or bad. 
Now, how do you explain this? I mean, what, what would you say? Chapter 6, verse 10, a, a beautiful description of hope. Work, love, service then, service now. God won't forget you. In chapter 5, verse 11, dull, uh, unacquainted or unaccomplished or unexercised with the word, untrained, not making any progress, can't go on in your routine. I put that together. Well, as I sat thinking about this, that's where I got my image here. I think we're catching them right in midair. We're catching them right in midair. The coach, the writer of this book, the coach is real smart. He knows gymnastics. He sees things ordinary people in the bleachers don't see. He's watching this routine. It begins. It makes a good start. I call that love, works, faithfulness, so on. And then all of a sudden he detects a little shaking in the arm. He detects feet that are just slightly separated. The fingers had no finesse on that last move. There's some trembling. And the coach knows something's wrong here. This gymnast doesn't do his routine like that ordinarily. Something is wrong. A good coach will notice that. It's clear that the progress of this gymnast has leveled off. In fact, he's gone downhill since the last time he saw the routine. Something is amiss. He seems to be negligent. Evidently, he's been sloughing off in his training. Training, exercise with the word of righteousness and the organ of faith. Now, question. What does that gymnast need right now? He's six feet off the ground, he's spinning fast, and he is about to panic because he feels the fatigue and his timing is slightly off and he could come down right on his head and break his neck and die. What does he need? He needs two things, and this coach gives him both. Number one... He needs some kind of rescue in this desperate, precarious position. He's hanging by his fingernails, would be to change the metaphor. His spiritual fingernails, and he's about to slip and kill himself. He needs some way out of this position. Like many of you right now, come into this room hanging by your spiritual fingernails, barely able to make it to tonight, wondering if you let go, you'll land on your head and die or land on your feet and maybe go another day. So that's the first issue. How do you get this poor fella out of that position onto the mat on his feet rather than his head? The second thing he needs is, if you can succeed in bringing him down to his feet, he needs a good talking to about his practices. Let's look at those one at a time. We've got to try to bring this gymnast now down out of the air on his feet rather than on his head. He's weary. He is uncertain. He's lost his stability. And you know I'm talking about the Christian life now. This is a routine of righteousness here. We're a lot in that position. What does that gymnast need to hear? He's in slow motion. 
I make him in slow motion because this is life. This is not happening in a split second. This is happening in days or hours. The voice of the coach is going to be heard. Now, what is the, what is the coach saying to a guy like that standing on the mat, on the edge of the mat? Here's the first thing he shouts. Find the floor! Find the floor! I've heard it. Now, I asked Barnabas this morning, he's my five-year-old, what does he mean, find the floor? And Barnabas said, uh, put his hands on the floor or put his feet on the floor. I said, no, 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 no. He's six feet off the ground. He's spinning. He's about to lose control. Find the floor means get it in your eyes. You can't do a backflip and land right if you don't get the floor in your eyes. You've got to find the floor. If all you see is a, an array of light in the, in the ceiling and the swirling in the audience, you're done for. It's all over. You will wipe out on the mat. You've got to find the floor back there and then snap into shape. So the first thing that the coach says is, find the floor. Now, where's that text in Hebrews? I just picked two out. They come from outside this text. I'll be back to the text in just a minute with the, with the other thing that, that uh, this man needs. I would take the shouts from, say, chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus! Or chapter 12, verse 2. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Look to Jesus! Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Chapter 13, verse 7. Jesus' oath is firm. Jesus' covenant is firm. This whole book is intended to display one great, massive, granite firmness that we need to get in view. If you're here this morning hanging by your spiritual fingernails, or if you feel yourself twirling, ready to come down square on your neck because you've lost confidence in your ability to do the Christian routine, my word to you, first and foremost, it's the first word everybody needs to hear is, find the floor. Find Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Get oriented on Jesus. Everything else will snap into view. If you have any gymnastic experience with God at all, it will snap into view. It will come into place. Look to Jesus. That's the first thing he shouts. The second thing he shouts, I don't even have to paraphrase this one from Hebrews because the uh, athletic imagery in chapter 12, verse 12, is already there for us. Chapter 12, verse 12. Here's, I would, I, it, it's written for a runner, but I'm going to translate it for a gymnast. I think the, the coach would holler second after he says, find the floor. He would say, get your hands up. You ever seen anybody try to do a backflip with their hands back here? It can't be done. You get your hands up. Get your hands up. They're lagging. They're slipping. And the second thing he says from that verse is, get your knees up. Tuck. Tuck. Now, what does that mean? I mean, that's all just a picture. What spiritually is he talking about in uh, chapter 12, verse 12, when he says, get your knees up, get your hands up, strengthen them? I think in the gymnastic image, what he means is, let the floor have its hope-giving, agility-producing effect. If the man can just catch the floor, Hope will recover. He'll get his confidence back that he could nail it. And as soon as that happens, you can just feel it kick in with his arms and his knees. They get back where they're supposed to be. And he doesn't just go all over like this and sprawl on the mat. 
So I think the two commands that you always give to somebody who's hanging by their fingernails or who is halfway up in the air and is falling and might break their neck is, number one, find the floor. Get your eyes fixed on Jesus. Orient yourself on what's firm and stable and lasting. Things will begin to fall into place. And then the second, you apply that by saying, get your arms up. Which could be some particular habit of life that you might be saying, get into shape. In passing, let me say something about the voice of this coach. For whatever reason, family reasons, religious reasons, personality reasons, you name it. Many people hear the commands of Scripture as burdensome, weighty, pressuring, slavish, hard, unloving, ungracious. That's just the way many people hear commands. They want to hear lenient things from the Bible. It doesn't matter if you disobey or it's okay, I'll forgive you. But if you tell them a command, and this is many of us now, it just doesn't feel like grace anymore. Listen, one way to help you get the Scripture rightly oriented in your mind is to picture a coach. He's got a lot at stake in you. And he loves you. And he wants you to nail it for a 10.0 if possible, 9.1 if not. And when that coach says... Find the floor! Find the floor! That's not a slave master. He doesn't want you to break your neck with sin. If we could just... I mean, if you've ever been in sports and had a good but tough coach that you really grow in your admiration of him, then you've got a model probably for hearing the Bible. It's not a slave master hollering... Find the floor. Get your hands up. It's a man who wants his team to win and he wants you to nail it for 9.1 or 10.0 and get the goal. I hope that image will just work on you to affect the way you hear the commands of Scripture. Now, let's find out where we are. I said that there were two things that this gymnast needs. The first thing is to be rescued from his precarious position, six feet above the ground, spinning, uh, possibly out of control, on the brink of panic, ready to break his neck. And my answer to how the coach got him out of that position was with two words, find the floor, that is, consider Jesus, and tuck, that is, uh, let your life respond now to the hope that you've gotten by orienting on the floor. But now that's not all this gymnast needs. He's hit the floor. He finishes. 7.8. And he walks off the mat. And he kind of cuts his eyes at the coach because he and the coach know, whether anybody else does, that he has been sloughing off. And so the coach comes over to him. And what does he say? This is the second thing he needs. He needs some counsel how not to let that happen again. That's chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. Here's the coach's counsel. We desire, each one of you gymnasts, to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope 
until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, let's analyze the coach's counsel. This is long-range counsel now. He's not rescuing them in the moment of crisis here. He's giving long-range counsel for how to finish his career as a gymnast, get the rewards, that is, get to heaven. There are three steps in the coach's counsel in verse 12. Let's look at them. Step number one, faith. Step number two, patience. Step number three, the inheritance of the promises. Faith is foundational. It leads to a life of long-suffering, persevering obedience in the will of God, and that is the road on which you attain the inheritance of the promises. Now, I want to show you that threefold pattern, faith, persevering, patient obedience, and inheritance, in another text so that you'll know this is uh, intentional, and we're on to something here. Chapter 10, verse 35, if you want to look at it with me. Chapter 10, verse 35. Step number one, we'll just parallel them so that you can see the same steps here in these verses. Step number one is in verse 35. It says, negatively, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Now, how would you state that positively? I would state it like this. Maintain confidence. That is faith. Have strong faith. So there's step number one from verse 12 of chapter 6. Step number two is given in the beginning of verse 36. It says, for you have need of endurance, patient endurance, so that you may do the will of God. So step number two is patient endurance in doing the will of God. And the reason you need not to give up on your confidence is because confidence is the energy, the power, and the enabling uh, force that will bring about that kind of persevering uh, obedience and righteousness. Step number three is at the end of verse 36. And receive what is promised. So there's your inheritance and the same three steps from chapter 6, verse 12. So let's go back to verse 12 of chapter 6 for a moment. To the coach's counsel, to this gymnast, as to how not to let himself get in a, in a situation where he uh, cuts up into a double backflip and loses confidence and almost wipes out. The three steps in verse 12 of chapter 6, 1, faith, 2, patience, which now we know is uh, patient obedience because that's the parallel in chapter 10, verse 36, doing the will of God. And third, inherit the promises. Now, in my picture, just in case you're not putting the pieces together, uh, getting the gold medal and being uh, successful as a gymnast, is inheriting the promises. That is, getting heaven, making it through the routine of life. And so, step two, the routine of uh, the uh, gymnastic mat performance is a life of persevering obedience to the will of God, patient obedience. And then the first step, faith, is uh, the sense of stability and confidence that you need in order to pull off a routine like that. As soon as a, a gymnast loses his confidence that he can make this, he will panic and lose his ability to land on his feet. Now, 
there is a fourth step in this text, a fourth piece of counsel besides those three that the coach gives. It's in verse 11, and it says, uh, show the same earnestness in realizing or maintaining or getting the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, I take the term full assurance of hope to mean faith. Full assurance of hope in verse 11 is the same as faith in verse 12. Now, let me give you two reasons for why I think that. Number one, the flow of the verses seems to me to demand it. If I read it shortened, you'll see it. Let me try that for you. It says, try to keep your full assurance of hope to the end so that you can be like those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, for that to make sense, faith and assurance must be overlapping realities at least. I would, I would paraphrase it like this. Try to maintain full assurance of hope so that you can be like those who through full assurance of hope and patience inherit the promises. Here's my second reason for thinking that they're the same. Chapter 11, verse 1, which you're all familiar with probably, says, Faith is the what? Assurance of things hoped for. It's almost exactly what we have here. Faith is, is the assurance of things hoped for. So when it says uh, hope, assurance of hope in verse 11 and faith in verse 12, I'm not inclined at all to distinguish these. Rather, to understand what faith is. Namely, faith is the assurance of, of good things coming your way from God. So let me summarize the four steps of counsel that I see now from this coach to this gymnast. And I'm going to take the text backward, starting at the end of verse 12. Step number four. I want you to inherit promises. I want you to get gold. I want you to be a successful gymnast. Step three. So don't give up the routine of righteousness. Be patient in it. Be patient in it. Two. Step two. The strength to keep you going in the routine of righteousness is the assurance of hope, that is, faith. Step one, maintain that faith or realize. Do what you need to do this morning, all this week, to get that assurance called faith. Which leaves us with just one last question. What do you have to do? How do you obey verse 11? doesn't tell you in verse 11, does it? It just says, do it. Realize full assurance. Be earnest about it. But it doesn't tell you how. Now, how are you going to answer that question? Here's the clue that I saw. The first answer, of course, for how to get assurance is to find the floor. I don't want to short-circuit that at all. That's the most important word to give to anybody. Find the floor. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. If we don't start there, we'll wind up in legalism. But if we stop there, we aren't biblical. We're not giving people what they need to make it to the end of their routine. The other thing that we need in order to get this assurance 
is, I think, hinted at in verse 12. I ask this question. What's the alternative or the opposite of assurance in verse 12? You see a phrase there that would look like the alternative to assurance? I would say it's the phrase becoming sluggish or whatever it is in your version. Becoming sluggish. Don't become sluggish. Have assurance. Now, as soon as I saw that, here's what I thought. If I could find the antidote to sluggishness, I'd have the prescription for assurance. And right at this point, all the English versions let me down. Because there is a wonderful clue to what the antidote for sluggishness is in this text. And you can't see it in English. Because I hate to pull rank and quote Greek to people. But it's just terrible what the English versions have done here. And I usually go to the New American Standard Bible and say, well, at least the NASB in its wooden literalness helps. And it didn't. Here's what you can't see. The word sluggish here, no throy, if it makes any difference to you, is used one other time in the New Testament. You know where? Chapter 5, verse 11. And you can't see that. And the author wants you to see it. He wants you to see that he's beginning with the problem of sluggishness. He's dealing with the problem of sluggishness all the way through. He's ending with an exhortation not to be sluggish. And you can't see it because these translators, every single one of them translated dull. And so you have no idea that it's the same word. It would never come to your mind that the author has begun with that problem, is ending with that problem. So I, I have to do what I hate to do and tell you that this is a clear intention on the part of this writer to deal with this problem of nothroi. It's exactly the same word. He didn't change one letter in it. Well, now, the reason that's important is because the antidote to dullness, sluggishness, is given in verses 11 to 14. And if I can find it, then I know the prescription for assurance. And we've already seen it. So let me just review it for you and we'll be done. It's in verse 14. At least it's clearly implied in verse 14. The antidote to dullness, that is sluggishness in the Christian life, is to have your faculties, your moral faculties with which you distinguish good and evil, trained. And you get them trained by practice. So the new, the new insight, this is not new to the gymnast, of course, the new thing that the coach is saying after he says, find the floor, and gets this guy down onto his feet, takes him off to the side of the mat and he says, look, we're not going to lose confidence like that again halfway through this routine and panic and almost break our necks. We're not going to do that. And here's the way we're not going to do it. We are going to train our faculties until it is second nature to nail that thing exactly right. And the way we're going to train our faculties is practice. So you'll be here early tomorrow and you will leave late. Now, let me translate that into spiritual reality. You know what I think needs to be practiced in this text? Faith. We'll, de- we'll take this up right here next week. 
The issue at the end of chapter 5 is a moral issue. This is not often seen by people. They think these people are childish and only can have milk because they're not able to handle the heavy doctrines. The reason they can't handle the heavy coaching and the new routines is they can't tell the difference between yes and no, good and bad, right and wrong. Why can't they? No practice. What do you mean no practice? I mean that at the beginning of their Christian life, they made a good they made a good start. They made some progress. They were out in the routine. They learned the moves. And then something happened. And the coaching instructions, these basic doctrines of Christ, started to just lie there. And they didn't take them and put them into practice with the organ of faith. Let me, let me just spell that out for just a minute and we'll be done. The organ of faith. Well, how would you finish this sentence? God... Faith is the organ that God has planted in the soul of man in order that they might blank by its exercise. Blank by its exercise. I would put in the blank, obey. Live righteously. Live holy. The whole point of giving faith to the soul is that the soul might exercise that organ, or you want to picture it as a heart, that the heart might pump the blood of obedience. Now, where do I get that? I get it straight out of chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered a sacrifice. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, Moses Chose ill treatment with the people of God. What's faith for? Obedience. Now, you go back and you ask, what's wrong with this church? They've stopped putting the organ of faith to work in the obedience of faith. And it has begun to what? What happens to an organ when it's not used? It atrophies. It can die. The organ of faith is designed to enable us to press on in the obedience of faith and inherit the promises. And these people have begun to slough off 